what are you Bonnie Doon on the tracks there, bud? This week, downtown is recovering. Or it isn't. Or it is. Or maybe it isn't. Plus, council debates OP12, the jargon way of saying it's more budget. Welcome to the new year. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 206. And Mac, right off the top, there's something pretty special going on this week and the next couple weeks. Yes, I thought we could use this opportunity to plug Chinatown Dining Week, which is back for another year. It runs January 26th to February 5th. There's 15 food businesses participating. And this year, uh, they're offering $10 and $20 deals, which I think caught your eye. Yeah, well, for me specifically, there's, I love bakeries and especially Chinese bakeries. They have such a different class of baked goods from what you would get. Hot dog buns, hot dog buns. (laughs) Hot dog buns. I also love those like egg tarts. You know, if you go to a westernized bakery, it's all very sweet. But like being able to go to a Chinese bakery and get something that's just like unabashedly tastes like egg. Mm, I love it. Mm. Uh, So I was very excited to see the $10 get a box full of fun stuff from a bakery deal. Of course, among the smattering of other deals at Chinatown Dining Week. Yeah, it's a pretty good lineup. You can find all the details at edmontonchinatown.ca. And uh, full disclosure, I've had a front row seat to the organization of this as my better half, Sharon, is the the co-founder of Chinatown Dining Week. And they've put a lot of work and it's all volunteer run to make this another uh, successful event this year. And I hope it will be a success. Like the three jokes are at the top of every episode. Building on the success of the 15 named snowplows, the city of Edmonton has expanded the initiative and named one of the Valley Line Southeast LRT vehicles, Charles Darwin. In an unrelated news release, the city is reminding drivers that if they're beside train tracks stopped at a red light with a large no right on red sign, they should probably not turn right on red onto the train tracks. We've got just as much culture as Toronto, is the claim as Chinatown Dining Week begins this week. The event, in its sixth year, sees 15 restaurants in Chinatown offer up deals and special menus in an effort to convince residents that somewhere with entirely zero cactus clubs can still be a hub of culture and dining. Post Media has announced a plan to cut 11% of its 650 journalists, leaving Lauren Gunter and David Staples breathing a sigh of relief since no one has ever called them that. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. APN, of course, has lots of interesting shows, including Quantum Kickflip, a slug blaster actual play podcast produced by local sketch comedy group, The Debutantes. Slug Blaster, I didn't know about this, Troy, is a tabletop role-playing game created right here in Edmonton, and the premise is about bored small-town teenagers who use things like hoverboards and ray cannons to go on adventures. Uh, Here's a clip to promote the second season of the show, which is now underway. In the warring megatowers of a cyberpunk dystopia, four teenagers use their modified hoverboards to sneak into other dimensions. It's dangerous. It's stupid. It's completely outlawed by the giant corporations that own the entire world. And it's the coolest thing ever. This is Slug Blaster. Brinley is going to use her beam like a grappling hook. Scampion, foam jet right to the center of the disc. A bunch of lightning just sort of crackles around him. This is our chance to put our crew on the map. Yes, pleases me to know that I have done well. At the last possible moment, you fire. Quantum Kickflip returns with an all-new adventure. Season 2 premieres Wednesday, October 5th. 
color me surprised that a role-playing game about bored small-town teenagers was Edmonton made. <laughs> Mac, I would say this week was marred by the ups and downs of downtown. If you're following the news via press release, you wouldn't be faulted for thinking either the downtown is thriving or the downtown is never coming back. It's end days. Mac, what happened this week? Well, two things in particular that we wanted to talk about. So the first, the it's rising, downtown is revitalizing and recovering, was an announcement by the University of Alberta that it's renewing Enterprise Square. It is moving about 500 staff down to newly renovated office space, which will double the current occupancy there. And, you know, they said this is a symbiotic relationship with the investment that the city has put into downtown in recent years. So that was the real positive one. And we'll come back to that in just a second. The other hand was DeepMind. So DeepMind is Google's or Alphabet's uh, AI subsidiary that's mostly in London, but had some other places, one of which was here in Edmonton. And uh, despite, you know, just a several months ago, celebrating the fifth anniversary of DeepMind in Edmonton, announced this week that they're closing the Edmonton office and, you know, kind of chalked it up to this broader trend of tech layoffs that you've probably heard about in the news. So, you know, good and bad. And of course, we've celebrated DeepMind as proof that Edmonton is a innovative technology economy for many a year. So it it's definitely a blow to both our downtown and our technology space, but reputationally, I think is the biggest blow there. Yeah, I mean, they talk about how Canada has been one of the first, or actually was the first country in the world to develop a national AI strategy in 2017. We've got these three hubs in Toronto, Montreal, and Edmonton. And Edmonton has been you know, elevated to the same level of them. And we have some of the, the most world-renowned uh, researchers in AI right here in our city. And so for DeepMind to choose Edmonton was a real feather in our cap. And, and it's been a key part of marketing around tech for Edmonton for a number of years. So it's disappointing to see them, you know, make that change. Although perhaps not entirely surprising, given that in those other two cities, they actually have Google offices. Edmonton was the only one that was run as a little bit of a, a satellite office, kind of in collaboration with um, AMI, the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the cherry on top, which uh, news came out just earlier today on Thursday when we're recording this, that the sport check in City Center Mall will be shuttering uh, forever. And now this perhaps is less of a class of news, but, you know, it's another march in the death knell of City Center Mall. Yeah, we should do a whole episode about City Center Mall. I don't know if you've been around there recently, but, you know, there's lots of things changing around that building, right? So there's obviously the Valley Line LRT, which is not yet operational, but we do have trains going up and down there all the time. And the entrances and exits to the mall have been starting to get closed. So the hangout spot, the very difficult door to enter near the bus stop right on 101st Street is actually no longer a stop. The city's moved this up further north. They've completely closed that entrance. And so that pedway on 101st that used to have a whole bunch of people congregating under it now is empty. There's nobody around there. You can't get into the mall there, which means everybody has shifted around to the side of the street where the train is. And you have huge groups of people now right next to the tracks, which I'm sure is going to work out well, Troy, when the train, you know, finally does start to become operational. But it's made it even more difficult now to get into City Center Mall. I can't say that I shopped at Sportcheck there frequently, but you're right. Like another closure just means, you know, more empty space inside this building combined with the closure of these entrances just makes it so much difficult to get in there. I I really don't know how that building is, uh, is, is surviving. My hope is that by removing this large anchor tenant, it makes it easier to redevelop the mall into something that actually 
faces the street and has mm-hmm. more entrances. Yeah. But, you know, the closer of that entrance does run counter to that. I think we probably want more permeability from the street into the mall rather than less. But of course, there's really nothing to permeate into right now. The mall is pretty desolate. Yeah, the one bright spot I guess we should point out kind of aligns with what you're saying is the TD Bank has just about completed its entire redevelopment there. And so it used to be pretty much inward facing. You had to go into the mall to get into the TD. And they've now taken that corner right on the LRT tracks and 101st. And it's, you know, their their green cube, their design. And it looks like there'll be a proper entrance right from the street. And so that's a big change that I think could be really positive. And, and you're right, if we see some of those other spaces closed to allow more of those kinds of entrances. I'm thinking like the Shoppers Drug Mart that also has its own entrance. That could be a good thing, you know, overall. Of course, we're not here to talk about City Center Mall this episode. We're a couple blocks away from City Center Mall at Enterprise Square, where the University of Alberta has relocated even more of their staff to the space, enough staff to warrant a celebration. Yeah, they had they celebrated this decision to move a whole bunch of people here and said that this will anchor a downtown science and innovation district which is really interesting for a couple of reasons. The University of Alberta bought this building, the old Hudson's Bay Company building, in 2005. And over 2006, 2007, they renovated it and they turned it into Enterprise Square, right? And they had some tenants at the time, like Tech Edmonton, which no longer exists, some other University of Alberta departments. And then they had, there was a radio station, the TV station in there for a while, right? Chum. Um, they had the art gallery in there temporarily, and then later they had the public library in there temporarily, but while both of their you know buildings underwent uh, construction. But the U of A has never, to me, really activated this building. Like, it's always been pretty difficult to get into. Um, I remember trying to go to some meetup events there and just finding your way to an unlocked door to get to the meetup is kind of tricky. So it's interesting that all of a sudden they want this to be the anchor of this downtown space, which is already happening, right? This innovation stuff downtown. You've got Amy just down the block, just down Jasper Avenue that has uh, just opened its newly renovated space and has taken up a couple of floors inside the first and Jasper building. You've got the uh, the old uh, Enbridge building, the black building on 103rd Street, 103rd Street Place, which has a lot of tech companies in it. And I feel like this innovation stuff happened around it while the U of A did nothing with Enterprise Square. And the other thing I wanted to quickly mention about the timing of this, I think is particularly interesting, is that in the last three or four months, there's been a couple of pretty high-profile op-eds and announcements from McEwen University about its intention to be the downtown university and the the sort of impact that it can have on the success of downtown. And this felt a little bit like a response to that from the U of A. Well, if it's the U of A's response, uh, I would say it is a lackluster one at best. Uh, I, like you, um, have seen very little in terms of activation in this space. I used to work for the University of Alberta in the IST department. So, you know, some of our staff was in Enterprise Square. And even as a staff member, getting past the locked doors and the frosted glass to get to my meeting was very, very difficult. To say it was an unactivated space, I think, is an understatement. Uh, perhaps it will get better now that they sort of have taken over the whole space and have more people there. Mm-hmm. But what gave me the largest hang-up on this is that the whole thing, you have City of Edmonton councillors, the mayor, you have the president of the university, you have downtown folks like from the Downtown Recovery Coalition, all in a room, all people who understand how things fit together, all all understand long-term strategies. And none of them thought, hey, you know what's in the basement 
of this building that we are celebrating? An LRT station. What about transit? Because the University of Alberta used to give staff transit passes. They don't anymore. Staff have to pay for their own transit independently, which, you know, if you're a staff member and you don't ride transit that frequently, you just won't do and you'll pay for parking and drive your car. It was a blunder when it was just the university kiboshing this program and not continuing it. But now they're saying we're going to move more of our staff, staff that need to support learning and teaching at other institutions along the line. I'll note that university (laughs) and South Campus are literally both LRT stops as well. They're not providing any access to the LRT, which, of course, staff members can still independently pay for the LRT. And, you know, if it's a business purpose, they could probably expense it to the manager. But they're not going to choose it. It's not going to be default. And if I'm on main campus and one of my friends worked at Enterprise Square and I just want to meet to go for lunch downtown, well, I'm going to be less inclined to do that if I have to pay and then expense it or if it's not even an expensable thing. All of this is about activation of downtown, activation of our LRT, and it seems like an absolute no-brainer for a building that is literally an LRT stop to give LRT access to the staff working there. But, you know, that's just one guy's opinion. (laughs) Man, I completely agree. I mean, what is there, four stops that take their names from University of Alberta buildings, essentially? Uh, These are the two largest employment centers in our city, downtown and the University of Alberta, connected by a train. Lots of places would kill to have that kind of connectivity. And then we go and make it difficult for people to actually use it. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I'll remind the listener, it's not like this is speculative. Granted, these numbers are pre-pandemic, but a full quarter That's 25% of all trips on the Edmonton transit system are made by UPass. That's students who have transit passes. The UPass program was wildly successful. And there are 15,000-ish employees of the University of Alberta. You can absolutely substantially increase the usership of our LRT, and you can make revenue that way as well. There's a union at the University of Alberta, you could totally have the union pay Edmonton Transit a fee and then everyone automatically gets a transit pass. And once you automatically have the transit pass coming out of your union dues, maybe you're more likely to use it. There's a lot of ways this system could be set up. I would say ignoring it and pretending the train in your basement doesn't exist is not one of the ways that I'd recommend. And you know, with a little bit of focus on it, maybe we could even get some better entrances to that underground LRT station from the street level. Ah, dream dream a little bit smaller, Mac. (laughs) Just total aside, I had no idea it was 25%. That's crazy. As another aside, if you want an absolutely riveting read, my favorite white paper that the city of Edmonton has ever produced is back in, I want to say 2014 or 2015, there was Mm -hmm. a white paper on user fees and taxation that the city of Edmonton published. This is where that nugget about 25% of the transit usage comes from. It's also where the nugget that at the time of the white paper, transit generated on the order of $700 million of value for the city. This is, of course, off a uh, tax bill of around $250-$300 million, yeah. which just goes to show that every dollar we invest in transit immediately pays dividends in the double to triple. The idea that we are not investing in transit has always been and continues to be absurd to me. Of course, I'm not the only one who wants some more money and funding for transit. Uh, Amarjeet Sohi was asking the province for eh, a wee couple billion dollars for transit, for infrastructure projects, for climate resilience, and a whole host of other things. And Mac, do you think the province is about to say yes? <laughs> I mean, if the chances of they're going to say yes are pretty pretty slim to none. So 
why not ask for the moon, right? The province, of course, is projecting a greater than $12 billion surplus, so they could have money to spend if they wanted to. They they do. They do have money to spend if they yeah, want yeah, to. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Sohi's letter requested about $2 billion. And on top of that, you know, he also outlines, you know, supportive housing units, funding new affordable housing, all of those kinds of things at some greater cost. So it's actually more than, you know, $2 billion, which is really interesting. But some of the things included that he wants the province to kick in money for, 620 new hydrogen buses, which would cost about $840 million. If you buy new buses, you need garages to house them in. So that's $181 million for new transit garages. He wants a top-up to MSI, the Municipal Sustainability Initiative. And uh, he's also looking for, and this one was the weirdest one to me, Troy, $185 million to renovate and upgrade Commonwealth Stadium. That one's the weirdest one on top of the 640 hydrogen buses. This is very much a moon ask, I would say. Yeah, no, the whole thing is. I mean, I could understand, though, like, okay, we could make the argument that whether or not you think hydrogen is going to help us reduce emissions, it's a step maybe in that direction, and maybe that's why you want to go that route. But $185 million to renovate and upgrade Commonwealth Stadium really feels at this time like a little bit of a response to the uh, the suggestion that Premier Daniel Smith said that she would support a new arena in Calgary. And I'm sure, you know, Calgary listeners are like, well, you guys already got an arena. But, you know, maybe it's kind of savvy of the mayor to say, well, if Calgary's about to get a bunch of money for, you know, entertainment and events, maybe we can sneak a little bit of that as well. And of course, Commonwealth Stadium is in need of some rehab. It still functions, but it's a little bit drab. I find it's especially drab when compared to the new rec center that opened just adjacent to it with this like sleek glass Mm -hmm. and black panel lines. Like it's a very gorgeous space. And then the concrete bowl beside it looks eh. And it could potentially be the reason that we did not get selected to help host the FIFA World Cup, right? Something to do with our our stadium. So, you know, maybe there's an argument to be made there. If we do want to go down that world-class event route, which is maybe a whole other you know, kettle of fish we don't want to get into right now. You know, I think some of the things he's been asking for are pretty consistent, obviously, right? So funding for affordable housing, supportive housing, even, you know, more money to make up for the MSI stuff has been something they've been talking about for a while. And it's something that municipalities all across the province are concerned about what's happening with that program and its um, proposed successor. Uh, He also asked for, you know, some uh, climate adaptation stuff. And interestingly, he wanted the city to be able to keep more of the property taxes that it collects for the province. So as you said, kind of big sort of moon ask here, right? Shoot for the moon. If you'll recall the last time, so he gave a list of asks to the province, which at the time we also classified as a little bit of moon asks. He yeah. ended up getting a couple of them. And one of them was that $5 million for uh, downtown recovery that we covered in a previous episode kind of evaporated pretty quickly, but he got it. The province did end up giving us that money. Yeah, so that could be the strategy here, right? Ask for a whole bunch of stuff, knowing you're not going to get everything, but hopefully, you know, some of the things on the list do get some attention from the province. Maybe it's a similar strategy where the city council has asked city administration to reduce expenses by $60 million over the next four years and to identify an additional minimum of $240 million that could be directed to priority areas such as housing and climate change. This all got wrapped together into a council meeting report 
We're going to call it OP12. That's that's what we're calling this ask. And we dealt with that this week. Yeah, OP12, of course, is the operating budget amendment, the 12th one that was made during the budget deliberations last uh, last year in December. And it's the one, as you say, that is meant to be about cost savings. And the $240 million is not a reduction, it's a redirection. So they want to take it from other things and spend it on more priority areas, as you mentioned. So you know, they, they made a special point in their meeting this week, the mayor did, of, of saying that it's not about austerity. You know, it's about redirecting to higher priority things. So this meeting this week was the first opportunity for administration to respond to that amendment, essentially. And what they brought forward, what the city manager, Andre Corbold, presented was a little bit of a plan for how they're going to do this. They identified seven streams of work. The one that kind of stood out to me as being potentially interesting was review organizational structure, which, you know, maybe could lead to fewer levels of management. That's a criticism that's been levied at the city over the years. And then they talked about, you know, a little bit of the timeline. So they want to come back to council every month, essentially, to get input on their progress, get direction, solicit ideas from council. That's a refreshing change, as the city manager pointed out, from the typical approach, which is council asks for something, administration goes away and comes back six months or a year later. And like, things have changed dramatically in that time, right? So I think these more frequent touch points could be a a benefit here. And then he also just said, there's some things we just can't do. So for example, you know, we have to meet the MGA obligations, we have to honor debt financing obligations, all of those kinds of things. So they're not in scope. And the 240 million can't really be touched until the fall when the budget amendments come forward. So that could make what would normally be, you know, more routine uh, end of the year budget updates a little bit more interesting, I would say. When I was hearing the discussion on this item, a couple things were running through my head. The first of which is, haven't I been here before? Isn't this all kind of deja vu? I'm thinking of Council's 2% initiative, which uh, Council watchers will remember as sort of like a hallmark of the Don Iveson era of city council, which was the idea that administration is supposed to continually find 2% in savings for efficiencies. That seems a lot like this $60 million ask that the current council is asking of administration. Yeah, I think it's very similar. And this was some of the criticism that was uh, raised during the budget deliberations. Like, how can we ask them to find more reductions when it feels like we've been constantly undergoing program and service review for the last while. But they went ahead with the motion anyway, and here we are. And one of the things that um, Andre Corbold said they will do first is define core services. So they really want council's input on this too, to decide and define like what are core services. I think core services are one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot that maybe everybody has a different idea about what that means. And maybe that's something that should have happened before we did previous program and service reviews, but that's one of the first thing they're going to try and do here. So in February, council's supposed to come up or supposed to decide on the, the definition of core services that administration comes up with. If you're working within the city, I've definitely heard from people in the city organization that on any given week, they're not quite sure which department they belong to. The city Mm -hmm. has been reorganizing since time immemorial. I doubt many of the frontline workers who aren't in these several layers of management are too excited at the idea of another sort of like organizational shift and restructuring. Yeah, and the mayor and several of the councillors who asked questions and spoke to this item referenced that, right? They are worried about the message that this motion, this this amendment sends to staff at the city. And, and that's why the mayor was saying, you yeah, know, it's not really about austerity. We want to be more efficient. 
And Councillor Ann Stevenson, who of course used to work in administration, leaned on her experience there a little bit and said, quote, there's a lot of internal red tape. And she said she's optimistic that the changes they're talking about here, some of the, the, the things they might redirect and some of the changes they might make organizationally could result in a culture that is more accepting of risk. I think that's a bit of a stretch. The city's never been a super uh, happy to take risk kind of organization. It tends to be pretty risk averse. But, you know, I think her experience is obviously totally valid. She would have firsthand knowledge of, of what it's like working on the inside and where those things might be improved. Of course, something that's underpinning all of this is the discussion we had at budget. Uh, you'll recall during budget time, uh, city manager Andre Corbald, the head of the city, had some pretty galling comments about climate change and about his duty to enact council direction. And I would classify many of those comments as extremely conservative, risk averse, uh, not willing to do the most Edmonton thing you can do. And if that is our selected head, that is the person directing all of this, one has to wonder to what extent can cultural change happen when I think Andre Corbald as a city manager is kind of the definition of a status quo selection. I do think it's kind of interesting that Andre Corbald is uh, leading this. I mean, it makes sense. He's the city manager. He has to lead this. But if they allow it to keep going, council allows it to keep going, then it's really a sort of vote of confidence in in Corbald, right? To say, we're going to reorganize the city based on your evaluation of all the different programs and services and how we might find these savings. And you're the guy to do it. And so that's interesting because, you know, it seems at times in the last several months that council and and administration have, have been at odds, as they often are. But more than that, that maybe councils had some concerns about Andre Corbold himself, right? He was very open and agreeable in this meeting and eager to get underway and, you know, wasn't didn't sound too standoffish as you might reasonably assume somebody might be who has to now you know find 60 million dollars in savings so maybe maybe it'll turn out to be a good a good working relationship between them as i said i do think that coming back every month could be a a a good reason to support that of course there's a good half a billion dollars that's sort of off the table in this discussion and that's the edmonton police which we got confirmation won't be a part of this efficiencies discussion right councillor andrew knack and actually several of the councillors were kind of wondering about abcs agencies boards and commissions and the tenor of the conversation was essentially you know we're asking administration to go find cuts shouldn't we be asking everybody else who's connected to the city to go do a similar exercise one of them being the edmonton police service and andre corbold said no the question is, uh, do we want other orgs to do a similar thing? But for the police, we have a funding formula. That's the best path forward for deciding what kinds of changes might be made to the police budget. Councillor Michael Jans also spoke about this. He wants to see everybody, you know, including organizations where the city's just a shareholder like EPCOR, also lead a similar you know, cost reductions uh, a- a- exercise. There's one other thing that maybe we didn't hear a lot about, and that's the role of the city auditor in all of this. Of course, you know, the city auditor is one of the other positions that the council directs. And previous audits have raised concerns about, for example, the amount of money that the city spends on consultants, you know, to the tune of like 120 plus million dollars a year. So that could be potentially an opportunity to reduce expenses. So we'll probably hear more about how that connects with um, the, the work that's undergoing on this uh, OP12 in the, in the months to come. Last year, an emergency meeting, Edmonton City Council voted to open up a new 24-7 temporary shelter in West Edmonton. That shelter opened this week, but opened is in a little bit of verbal quotation marks. 
Yeah, so this is the project that's um, in partnership with Jasper Place Wellness Center in a former hotel on Stony Plain Road. And when it's fully done, should accommodate more than 200 people. But for now, it's got 59 private rooms. And the remaining rooms are, are meant to open in a phased approach over the next couple of months. So it is open. They did prioritize funding for this. And uh, that's a good thing, especially, you know, as we're a- about to experience a deep freeze again a little bit. But Mayor so he wasn't thrilled with the delay. Of course, this entire project started as an emergency stopgap. This is not something that is the broad solution. We know what those solutions are, and we've been advocating for the government to provide some of those solutions. But this is acknowledgement that there's a bunch of people sleeping on the streets in the cold, and that's not great for them surviving. That's not great for amputations. That's not great for a whole host of reasons. And this was supposed to be a stopgap solution. So I can understand Amarjeet Sohi's frustration when the stopgap took longer to come online. Did we get any sense why the shelter took longer to open and why it's still not fully open? Uh, The answer, Troy, is I don't think we do know why this has taken longer than planned. Our understanding is that these are, you know, temporary emergency emergency shelter spaces that were funded by the provincial government who, you know, provided $5 million, I think it was in October, for 450 additional spaces. And, you know, I reported on this actually in December. And at the time, administration said that of the 450 spaces, 300 were operational and that all 450 would be operational by mid-December at the latest. So we didn't get an update in response to the mayor's comments about why there's been a delay, but I can totally understand the frustration because this decision was made now almost two full months ago. These aren't the only services that were getting attention this week. There was a Strathcona ARP and zoning discussion that came up at City Council, and this is all intermixed and related with what we talked about in West Ritchie, where Boyle Street wants to open up a new hub that provides health services. These zoning changes were approved 10-2, but most of the discussion around these zoning changes, which didn't seem to relate to Boyle Street that much, were, of course related to the Boyle Street discussion. Yeah, it's really interesting if you read the council report on this that went to public hearing, they talked about, you know, updates to the Strathcona ARP to address concerns raised by the old Strathcona Business Association about, you know, some businesses they'd like to have in the community being denied development permits because of this outdated zoning. Most of the buildings in this area are one and two story commercial buildings. And there's some weird things for sure in the old uh, ARP. For example, that uh, sight lines to the CP rail lines should be maintained, which completely ignores that since then we've built a multi-story building that completely blocks the sight line. So that that ship has sailed. That's gone. The train has left the station. That's the one I meant. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't really about Boilster. It was about these outdated zoning rules that, you know, seem sensible to change. And so the proposed new uses would allow breweries, wineries, distilleries, cannabis retail stores, You know, urban indoor farms, you're nodding along thinking, yeah, those are all kinds of new businesses that seem to be growing. And supportive housing is also one of them. And I think that's where the connection to the Boyle Street hub really comes into play. So they proposed building this health hub in the area. It would work as, you know, a bit of a a microsite for services for, for people for looking for housing, recovery and addictions, all that kind of stuff. And I guess the previous zoning would have prevented that from from happening. 
it was rezoned. Um, this amendment passed 10 to 2. Uh, the two opposed to it are exactly who you were expect they are. It's Councillor Rice and Councillor Principe. But I thought this was very interesting because this is in my neck of the woods. I'm over in Hazeldine, which is directly adjacent to Ritchie. I walk over to Ret- West Ritchie all the time. I was walking over there a mere couple days ago. I did the winter bird count. My zone was in West Ritchie. And we walked by the area where this health hub would be built. And just last week, it was very interesting to me because there's a mustard seed building in the neighborhood that, you know, provides some services. Uh, It usually has a decent number of houseless people congregated outside of it waiting for services. You know, there's there's some tents near it, uh, that sort of thing. Someone had mentioned to me that city council is ruining the neighborhood because of this new development that they just approved. They're, of course, thinking of the Boyle Street Health Hub that we're talking about here. They thought it had already been built. They thought it was the mustard seed building. And they thought that the current state of the community with people around the mustard seed was the neighborhood, quote unquote, going to hell. It makes me question when we hear from people at public hearing about the great character of the neighborhood and how that neighborhood character will change. To what extent are these people reliable narrators in these stories? Because they didn't seem to know what building was going to be constructed. And they seemed to think the area that was ruining the neighborhood was in fact something that's already part of their neighborhood and was what they were accolading as a great neighborhood character. It all struck me as this is a little bit of fear mongering overall. Maybe we should just let the science and public health guide our zoning decisions a little bit more than we tend to. This was kind of a little bit of business versus health, right? Business versus the well-being of our community. There were several area businesses who spoke at the public hearing and said, you know, they feel like there's been a lot of success in the area and they think that approving this change could lead to negative things that happen. And that's what Councillor Jennifer Rice said. She said she was torn by whether or not to vote in favor because she supports, you know, reducing red tape for new businesses or against because she thinks this health hub, you know, could increase concerns about safety for businesses and that could hurt business in the area. And we've obviously heard a lot about this downtown as well. Businesses, you know, don't want unsavory looking folks or these kind of social service buildings next to them or near them because they think it's bad for business. But council's already kind of given direction that these things can't all be concentrated. And the sooner we figure out how to allow these things to coexist positively, the better off we're all going to be. Because this kind of conversation is not going to go away. It's going to happen in all different pockets of our city. So stay tuned to that and we'll bring you all the updates to this story. And speaking of stories, let's read an ad about StoryHive. Uh, Calling all new and emerging content creators in BC and Alberta. In case you haven't heard of StoryHive, they've been supporting storytellers in Western Canada since 2013. This year, they're celebrating their 10th anniversary with the biggest edition yet. The StoryHive Anniversary Documentary Edition is funding 80 short documentaries on any local story you are passionate about. Just pitching here, someone needs to do a documentary about the naming of the bike lanes in Alberta. I'm talking about Oliver Bond. I'm talking about Garcona Strauss. I I wanted to make a serial parody about it, but I I didn't have the journalistic resources. You might. And if this is your forte, you can get $20,000 in production funding, training, and mentorship, and even distribution on TELUS Optic TV and Stream Plus. 
If you live in BC or Alberta and you have an idea for a short documentary, now is the time to send in your pitch. You can send in your application by February 28th at storyhive.com slash apply. Your story, your narrative. That's a good tagline. Well, that's it, Mac. We made it through another week. Uh, maybe council will get a little busier now. I hope so, Mac. I feel like we are really scraping the bottom of the barrel for salacious stories. But, you know, in the background of all of this, uh, the provincial government has been, once again, sucking all the air out of the room. So maybe we can have some oxygen back at the municipal level next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.